0: You ready? Showtime mm-hmm. on May third. Summer starts with the Fall Guy.
1: We do it later. Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes. Right, welcome everybody. This is Derek Bodner, joined by Rich Hoffman on this week's Sixers beat, a part of the CLNS Media Network. How you doing, Rich? Richard Philip Hoffman. I don't actually know your middle name, but I'm going to go with Philip. You'll be Philip today. How you doing, buddy? What are you talking about,
0: man? <laughs> <laughs> what an intro. The uh, I am uh, I am still amazed that there was an NBA trade. That was agreed to, and then canceled because two that guys was, on the team had the same last name.
1: That was the craziest shit I have ever seen. So we're sitting back there. The way uh, post game works nowadays is they bring Brett Brown out into a you know a press conference room. We do that there, and now then they bring the two or three stars of the game into that press conference room, and a lot of time there's a pretty lengthy wait in between each person. And in that time, we can go into the locker room and try to get, try to get other people on the side. But so we're in that press conference room, kind of just shooting the shit. And you know, we all start like we're all on our phone constantly. We're all checking the mobile notifications that we get. And it's like, could the only real explanation of this happening is they asked for uh, they asked for the player, they asked for Brooks, and they didn't specify. And then we're walking back to the press room, uh, the work room. And the Woj tweet came out, and it was the craziest. We have, and, and we specifically as Sixers reporters, but NBA fans have seen a lot of crazy shit over the years. That was one I've never seen before. That was one I don't think I'll ever see before. And it was, uh, I've, I found it wildly entertaining. I was sitting in my car in the Wells Fargo Center parking lot last night, just reading NBA Twitter's reaction because it was, it was priceless. It was one of those moments you won't forget. It's probably up there with the Emoji Wars.
0: Yeah, when I think of great NBA Twitter days, the DeAndre hostage situation is definitely number <laughs> one. But this was, it, it was pretty fun to just. It, what really amounts to a nothing trade, especially with Trevor Ariza going to Washington, and that that deal has been a. Uh, the Phoenix and Washington kind of cut Memphis out of it today, and. They're basically sending a reason to Washington, and I'm sure he'll put them over the top for the seven seed, maybe. But uh, <laughs> it was, uh, you know, for a trade of very little consequence, it uh, it found a way to be very entertaining. That's for sure.
1: Yeah, it really did. And of course, you've got all kinds of sides covering their ass, and you know, Memphis saying, "Oh no, we were saying Marshawn all the time," and Washington saying, "Oh no, we relayed Marshawn." and And Phoenix saying, no, that was never what we agreed to. And and everyone just sort of looks incompetent. I kind of, I lean towards blaming Ernie Grunfeld just because that seems like the easy way to move forward. And blaming Ernie Grunfeld doesn't necessarily ever seem like the wrong approach. But it was, it was, it was very entertaining. And I'm surprised, like like you alluded to, it's a trade that doesn't really make any sense. You know, Phoenix jumped the market by doing this on the first day that Ariza was eligible to be traded. They did so for a package that I'm not a huge Kelly Oubre fan. Like, I don't think that he is going to put his physical tools together together into an actual useful NBA player. And while I like Areza, like you said, what's Washington going to do? Be a seven seed? Oh, make that run. Save your jobs. It just it doesn't make – like, Washington should not have been the team to pursue Ariza, and Oubre should not have been the return to jump the market to let go of Ariza. It was very surprising all around.
0: Yeah, didn't make a lot of sense. No.
1: Nope. Speaking um, of
0: teams that might have pursued Ariza, Yeah. the Sixers have no depth, man.
1: Kyle tweeted out the other day, they need more good players, and we can X as an O all we want. We can talk about Fit and Simmons and Embiid and Butler all we want. <laughs> they don't have enough players who are good at basketball
0: right now. It's a very fair statement. They need more good players. And, you know, as much as we talk about offense, and trust me, I like talking about offense more. It's the easier thing to talk about, in my opinion. I'm just looking at the lineup last night, and Redick is out there. He's taken a huge step back defensively, I think. Furkan is out there. He was getting lit up by Bogdanovich and all these other guys. Muscala is out there. P.J. is guarding Oladipo. And outside of Ben Simmons, I, I'm watching the Sixers last night, and, and I'm saying to myself, because I talk to myself, that I hate pretty much every defensive matchup out there. Yep. Indiana can attack any one of these. Indiana, not an offensive juggernaut by any means. And I, I think the last couple of games, we've seen couple of different teams in, in Indiana and Brooklyn. And you see, when you remove Jimmy Butler from the equation, things get dicey really quickly. I mean, they're, they're dicey anyway, but having a star-level player like Jimmy Butler can help, uh, over you know, he can fix some of those concerns by just being so good. But, you know, we're seeing it. This team was not deep to begin with this year. And they traded two actual rotation players, pretty good ones, for one and Butler. So when Butler's hurt, it's like, oh my god, this is just what are we doing here? It's it, it was it was a rough couple of nights down at the uh, at the old Fark, that's for sure.
1: Yeah, and it's it's you know it goes beyond just Butler's absence. Like I think the Butler trade was a necessary move because acquiring somebody of Butler's skill set and talent is much more difficult than getting the role players they need to finish out the roster. Like, you can go out and you can find contributors on the perimeter as a backup five who can fill out this roster much easier than you can get that third guy who can create in the half court and play defense. So I don't, like, in no way is this saying that the Butler trade was a mistake. But it does set you back a little bit in terms of, terms of your depth, which is set back even more because the team, you know, prioritize keeping salary flexibility, which, by the way, I'm still okay with. Like, it's going to hinder them this year, and I I, I sort of made that concession knowing that it would do so. I'm trying not to live in the moment by complaining about the depth right now because I do think keeping that flexibility is worthwhile, both because I do think, quote-unquote, star hunting has merit, and this is such a unique opportunity, and I still stand by that, even though it didn't work last year, but also because I just think the depth of the free agent class is better next year to find long-term contributors, not necessarily stars, but long-term contributors. So I think not, you know, committing yourself to contracts last summer was not, still not necessarily the wrong move, even though if it, even though it hindered your depth. But that does impact 2018-19. You know, Markel Fultz impacts 2018-19 in a big way. Right. So you have all of these, and you know, Muscala being in and out of the lineup. Um, everything that's going on with Zaire Smith, even though I think people are, were expecting a little bit too much out of him in year one. Like, I don't think Zaire Smith is fixing your playoff problems as a rookie, Agreed. but they have pieces who can maybe grow into these role players that you need down the line, but they're either unavailable or not ready. So they need to go out there and get more depth. And I kind of said this on Twitter today. It amazes me. You know, you look at Simmons and Joel Embiid and they fit, no matter what numbers you look at, they fit. Like last year, they were in the top lineup in the entire NBA. This year, you look at the starting five right now, the current starting five, and it's like a plus 18 net rating. Granted, it's small sample size, but it's a plus 18 net rating. And that group look, has
0: Wilson Chandler on the floor.
1: I, and it has Wilson Chandler on the floor, who's been sneaky really, really – I don't even think sneaky anymore. I think a lot of people are noticing it. He's been really bad. And he had another instance last night where J.J. had to like pretty much shove him to his floor spot offensively.
0: He does not know the plays.
1: He does not know the plays. Um, or he's the space kid. I'm not sure which one. I didn't probably watch him enough in Denver to make that conclusion de- definitively. But that lineup is killing it. You look at really any lineup that includes Ben Simmons and Joel Embiid but doesn't include Markel Fultz and TJ McConnell, players who really gum up the paint on top of Simmons already non-existent shooting. And they're at like a plus 10 or a plus 11 net rating for Two people whose fit is very heavily scrutinized. They, by and large, succeed. And I think there are some teams that they're going to have more trouble with than others. Like, I think Toronto and Boston. We talked about this a couple pods ago. I think there are legit concerns about how teams like that can use Simmons' weaknesses to help out on Joel Embiid. And I think that is something to be concerned with. But for a team, I looked up in the middle of the fourth quarter... And they were trying to get you some rest because he, he desperately needed it. But you're looking up and there's like a lineup with, you know, Wilson Chandler and Furkan Korkmaz and Landry Shamit, And it's just like they don't have enough guys. Like we really don't have to make this that complicated. They don't have the guys. It shows up night in and night out in perimeter defense. By and large, they still compete offensively, which is – Again, a real testament to Joel Embiid going completely bonkers more often than not, and J.J. Redick's incredible fit offensively, and, and Jimmy Butler's talent when he comes back, and Ben Simmons, we'll get to him, but I actually think he's shown some signs recently. That's not the main problem for this team competing on 2018-19. Fit with Embiid and Simmons is a concern long-term in them reaching their ultimate potential, but it's not their Achilles heel right now, and... Uh, it's kind. Of, it's just going to be real interesting to see what they do in the next two months. Like they've, we've said this before, but but Elton Brand has a, a a real like he's got to be ready and he's got to be ready right now.
0: Yes, he does. Do you know what Nemanja Bielitsa is shooting from three right now? By the way,
1: I do not. Why don't you tell? I'm assuming pretty good since you brought it up.
0: Forty eight percent. Yeah. Oh man, <laughs> that would have been the best signing of the summer. And I do agree with you. You know, I see people kind of killing this front office for not adding quality depth pieces, and Chandler and Mescala not working. And I, I think I agree to an extent; those guys have not been good. But I also agree that keeping the uh, the powder dry was a necessary part of this, and that was going to hinder them in the uh, in the short term. I uh, it's just it just seems like such a bad situation though because uh, the other part of this that got me a little bit worried last night and it, it, there's a great stat you had in your uh, in your piece that went up uh, on Saturday. I get, are we still pretending what they were recording <laughs> on or whatever? Uh, so no. w-
1: we're recording something right now on Saturday. I have a lot of stuff to do this afternoon and tonight, so I'm probably not going to get a chance to listen to it before. so it might come up on Sunday morning. So that's why Rich is saying that.
0: On a piece that Derek did four days ago for the Athletic (laughs) Philly, uh, there was a good stat you had about Embiid's first-half numbers compared to his second-half numbers. Uh, And and I don't have them exactly in front of me right now. Let me see.
1: It was 15.2 points in 17 minutes per game in the first half, and he shot 52% there. And then 11.4 points on 42% shooting in 17 second-half minutes. Almost the exact same minutes because Brett is is real strict on his staggering. Um, But, yeah, I mean, you're talking a 10% drop in field goal percentage and a four-point-per-half drop in
0: scoring. So so when we talk about fatigue, usually, and Joel, it's usually a general thing. It's usually he needs to get rest so he can be fresh for the playoffs. But – I think the thing you're starting to see are these monster first halves, and my God, was he just unbelievable last night. Miles Turner, (laughs) he just absolutely destroyed him. But you're seeing that he's following those halves up by not doing nearly as much in the second half. And I I still haven't gotten all the way through uh, my rewatch of that game, but it kind of felt like the Pacers were fronting him and being a little more physical. And, hey, you know, some of that might be on Brown and the players. They need to do a better job of getting him the ball. But you said this to me in the third quarter last night. You tapped me and said, man, he looks gassed. And I agree. You know, He spent the next four dead balls hunched over. Uh, and, yeah, it's, it's a concern. But I also think part of the reason he's gassed is that he has such a huge responsibility, especially when Butler is out. And yeah. It's tough. They don't really have any other answers. I, I, they're, you know, they run these crazy plays for Reddick, uh, you know, taking off balance shots. But it's like, what play do you want them to run? Something for Wilson Chandler? No. Something for Furkan? I don't know. Maybe Ben, as good as Ben is, he, uh, I think we've we've certainly been over his issues late in games and how it's a little bit tougher to uh, to run stuff and. Against uh, against Brooklyn, they tried to run those two post up plays for him, which I I do think were for Joel or JJ to shoot a three. And Brown said after the
1: game that he wanted Ben to come to the ball and kind of operate as a passer in the high post, and Ben yeah. kind of tried to work his way into a deep post catch. Yeah,
0: I think they wanted to run a split action with Embiid and uh, and Redick on those plays, but but whatever, it's it's not easy. And I I do think though that some of the reason that Joel. Gets tired as these games go on. And by the way, I asked him last night, were you tired? Uh, did you think they were more physical? No. He just, <laughs> he's a stubborn uh, SOB in terms of that, which is good. My,
1: my favorite embedism of the past week or so is after he sat that game out, he came back and he's like, oh, well, I get out of shape when I sit. So it's like, no, Joe, you didn't get out of shape because you sat for a game. That's not how. He, like, he, I, I get that you don't want to sit, but that is not
0: a, a cogent argument. He has said that a lot before, and and I do think it has some merit if he sits out for a month. Right, right, but not three days. So yeah, he. Well, and I also think like he's looked fresh. Uh, certainly in the first half of last night's game, he looked bouncy and and pretty good. And then after the game, he says, you know, it was he gets asked the question, is this tougher? this loss considering the monster stat line you put up. And he goes, well, next time I think I'm going to have to go for 50 and 25. Yeah. <laughs> and it's, yeah, it's, it's tough. Uh, but yeah, yes, was, I, I do think that the lack of depth is certainly not helping his, uh, his fatigue going forward. They need uh they need better players around him.
1: Yeah. And when, when I mentioned that on uh, Joe being tired in the third quarter, It was really defensively. And, you know, could they have schemed a little better to get him the ball? Probably. Certainly, I think they could have executed better. Like you said, they were fronting the post a lot. And the way you beat that is side-to-side ball movement. They just didn't do a whole lot of that well last night or the other night, depending on when we release this. Um, But it also, like, defensively is where I think it really showed up. And he just – he was very stationary defensively. And like you said, he was hunched over a lot. And when he's guarding Thaddeus Young, that becomes really evident because Thad – he's a real quick mover. He's a real constant mover. He will come to the ball. He will move off the ball. And you could just see Joel looking like he was in quicksand for a little bit of that second half. And, you know, I think that was a little bit of a tough matchup for him. They put him on there because they didn't want him dealing with the Miles Turner pick and rolls all night. But I think that might have worn him out a little bit too. And just the sheer load he's carrying in the first half of games, really in all games, on both ends of the court, you know, I do think there is, when we talk a lot about you know, maybe Joe not taking that extra step out to contest a pick and roll and dropping back too much without really even trying to contest. When good. we talk about some of these, for the most part, when we talk about some of these threes he takes that aren't like good trail threes, but like there's 18 seconds on the shot clock and he just doesn't feel like getting into position threes. I do think part of it is conditioning. Part of it is workload. I think he's in much better shape this year. Like I don't think he could have physically done what he's doing right now last year. But I do think there is still some work to go, and I think part of it is just that anyone playing 35 minutes a night with the kind of workload he is asked on both ends of the court is going to fatigue, especially when you're 7'2", 280, 290, whatever he actually is. It's a it's, it's, it's a lot of work for him. It's a lot of work for him. And it would be great if they had a little bit more of a competent backup center. Amir Johnson against, what was it, against Brooklyn that he, he played? Ugh. Completely lost. He he just father time I think has won that battle. The modern NBA game where he's asked to defend out on the perimeter and in space doesn't help him any bit, and he just looks completely lost defending the pick and roll. To Brown's credit, I mean Amir's pretty much out of the rotation right now except for when one of Muscala or Embiid are out of the game. Uh, but Muscala last night was or the other night against the Pacers was dreadful as well. So it's there there aren't many great options right now.
0: How do they fix it, man? I mean, they still have that 15th roster spot open.
1: They do. They have that 15th roster spot. You've got, um, you know, whatever happens with the Mark L. Fultz situation, and there are reports that teams are at least inquiring about him. There's been no report that the Sixers have received any offer that they're interested in. You have the, what, the room mid-level exception. You've got a trade exception. And you've got draft picks. You've got the you know, Suns or the Miami, P to, Miami pick that they got from the Suns um, that you can dangle out there. or you, Yeah, yeah, right. Miami pick that you got from the Suns. I'm talking myself in the circles, um, getting my Brooks confused. But, yes, you've got that out there to trade. You've got your own draft picks to trade. You've got a lot of second-round picks to trade. They have to be wise here. They have to be wise.
0: You've made the point, too, that – uh, recently, and this is something I really hadn't thought of until you brought it up, in that the Sixers should not be looking to just dump Markel Fultz's salary, because the number you need to look at is not the nine million or whatever he is owed next year. It's the the term uh, if you stretch it, and that's what like three point three million or something.
1: Yeah, a little little on it, like three point two point five or three point two five or something in that range.
0: Yeah the and you know, I hate coming back to this, but it it needs to be said when we're uh we're talking about the uh, sorry state of the sixers bench. I mean, the false trade is just such a killer i <laughs> no, i mean they they invested a lot
1: in that kid uh and so it, far, think about That'd even
0: if he was a just even a regular bench player, he's a below average number one pick, but he's a bench contributor, he's a solid third guard off the bench. That's one thing and then you know when we talk about all their draft assets I obviously I you know, I mentioned Bealitz earlier it's probably a good thing now that the Sixers have traded that pick away considering it's going to Boston if it's not the number 1 pick that the Kings are playing well
1: They're like, But what, that's another thing 12. you can trade huh They're like 15 and 12 or something like
0: that Yeah I think I think it's okay. 15 and 13 they barely okay. lost to the Warriors the other night and uh yeah it's you know even if I refuse to believe believe the Kings are going to make the playoffs as well as they're playing. (laughs) But even if it's a late lottery pick, that is another major asset that is just down the tubes now that could have helped with depth.
1: To your point, the value of that pick now is almost beside the point. The value, you know, the opportunity cost of the deals you could have made between draft night 2017 and now is really what we're talking about. And there was certainly a lot of time in that time period where that pick was very highly valued in a trade. And so far you've got those two big assets tied up into a a player who hasn't played in a month and hasn't really contributed to your team and you're now playing T.J. McConnell 25 minutes a night when T.J. McConnell should not be playing 25 minutes a night. Uh, I don't
0: know.
1: And and by the way, you could have traded T.J. McConnell for a first-round pick according, according to Woj too. But now you can't because you you have one real ball handler.
0: It's uh, it's not the best situation in the world. Sneaky thing, uh, I'm kind of tracking as the Sixers are sliding. JJ Reddick's only shooting 35% from three. Yep. I I suspect that'll improve as the uh as the season goes along. And he always talks about you know there he's been doing it long enough where there's ebbs and flows, but he'll eventually settle in at some number above 40%. But, yeah, he's been struggling, and uh, he talked about it last night. I haven't exactly looked at the numbers, but he's he's been like, the catch-and-shoot numbers, just they, they just haven't gone in. He missed three in the first half last night. And I think his uh, – I forget exactly what he said. He was like, these – oh, he said, even tonight there were three or four where you shoot them, and you're like, oh, that's delicious. And it turns out the bite was a little sour. Uh,
1: yeah,
0: they need him. I, I, obviously, his role is—he's probably doing more than the ideal workload. But yeah, some of these open threes, it's—you're watching them and thinking, "Oh man!" Like if you know, if if the rest of these bench guys aren't going to uh going to step up, it'd be nice to have a big JJ night once in a while.
1: Yeah, and there's you know he's shooting. What is it? Uh, hold on. I have this. He's shooting 35% from three, but he's shooting 57.3% on jump shots between 16 feet and a three-point line. That's pretty so good. still long shots. Typically for his career, you know, he shoots about 47% on those shots and about 41% from three. So if you look at them, they're they're about equal distance apart in in, in each direction. I think as the season goes on, that 57% is going to drop, that 35% is going to increase. And I I would still bet, and he referenced this last night, he's shooting 20% from the corners. He shot 49% from the corners last year. So I think when you look at all of these indicators, it they generally speak to Redick, his three-point percentage moving back towards his career norms. Um, Regression to the mean, as it's always said, or as I said last night, progression, which which isn't actually a thing, and I got called out on it, and rightfully so. But I would expect that returning to his career. Averages, and the rest of his game, well, offensively, has been really good. Uh, you know, I think that a lot but, of people
0: Not the defensive part, though.
1: No, and I think he's very clearly taken a step back defensively, and he, he was exploited last year in the playoffs to begin with. But a lot of people will complain about Embiid being out on the perimeter And part of that is he's just such a big, you know, he gathers so much attention from the defense. That's part of the reason JJ has these incredible mid-range numbers and is averaging a career high in points per game is because he just attracts so much attention. He has so much gravity when he rolls to the rim that, I mean, JJ feasts on this stuff. And he's he's playing really well outside of open catch-and-shoot three-point shooting, which, again, is the one thing I'm most confident in the world will return for JJ Redick. And defense, which is a legitimate step back.
0: Yeah. He's the master of the pocket pass to Embiid. Sp- speaking of that, I've been uh, I've been a little intrigued, e- even in last night's rough game. Brett Brown has played Ben Simmons at the four a lot more recently, especially when TJ has come into the rotation. I think but he's pretty clear that TJ when he's in the game is mostly going to be a point guard. I kind of like Ben Simmons at the four rolling to the rim. I've seen yep. it. He made a sweet pass. I forget if somebody missed the corner three the other night, but Brett always talks about putting him in that Blake Griffin half yep. roll four on three. And we haven't seen it that much over the past week or so. We're starting to see a little more of it. And I like that. Uh, Just conceptually, I think that's, yeah, we always argue whether Ben is a point guard or not, and you know I, I still don't know the answer to that. But but I think it's good, and and it's both both for the Sixers' current development and Ben's development as a player for him to be mixing in at the four a little bit.
1: Yeah, he had he had a couple of, you know, by and large, I think I think Ben has been playing better offensively lately. Like he had one of those games, um. He, when he was posting up Bruce Brown, you know, there was some, oh, well, Joel didn't get enough touches in this time of the game to start the game. And a lot of that was because Ben had so many mismatches between John Luehr and Brown that he knew he could get his shot and he knew he could score. And he was very efficient doing so. I think he had like 11 points on five shots in the first quarter of that game. And I think he's been looking for his post up more. I think by and large, it's been working. There are obviously some nights or some possessions where it doesn't, but I think he's been better at attacking that. And then against the Pacers, he had two scores where he drove off the pick and roll and where it seemed like Indiana forgot that he's actually right-handed. And he came off of a, a, a screen and just bulldozed his way to the rim and scored, which was nice to see. And then he had that one finish as a roll man off the pick and roll. Which was nice to see. And I agree with you. I think getting him into there, you know, we there's always a little bit of, well, they need Ben to be more aggressive if they're going to win. And then he's aggressive and it's like, well, Joel's not getting his touches. And basketball's a little bit of a zero-sum game in that regard where you pick the matchup you want to exploit and you do that and you can't have two people doing so at the same time. So there will be time where Ben Simmons or Joel Embiid is out on a three-point line whether that's playing the dribble handoff game with Redick or to space the floor for Embiid. There is time where you're going to have to find a way for Simmons to act off the ball. And I think they're, by and large, honestly, I think they're starting to find a little bit of a balance in that regard. And their problems lately have been defensively. So I think there's been some things to watch. And I do think playing that you know, short roll game with Simmons as a roll man and letting him then react to the moving defense can yield some benefits. And we said that at the beginning of the season when they first started talking about doing it more. And I think now that they're putting it in a little bit more, I think, it, I, quite frankly, it's been good to see. Because you are going to have to find a way to make him a threat in the half court. And this seems like a reasonable way to do so until or unless he develops a three-point jump shot.
0: It was such a joke how much faster he was than John Lohr. Yes. He was just uh, – I mean, there was no video – Breakdown necessary on that. It was just he's just faster, and John Lore looks like his feet are stuck in cement when uh, when Ben decides to go around him. The uh, yeah, it's uh, I think Ben has certainly been playing better recently. How? This is just a general question. Given these last couple of games, Spencer Dinwiddie is, is off the schedule for a while, which is good. <laughs> uh, how worried are you about this team?
1: So, it's hard to say because I don't know what this team is going to look like after the trade deadline. If you're going to tell me this is a team that's going to enter the playoffs, then I'm going to tell you I don't think this is a five through eight, nine-man rotation that can win in the playoffs. At least not win to the point of making a NBA Finals run, which everybody repeatedly says is the goal.
0: Yeah. I don't think Uh, it would get out of the second round, honestly.
1: No, I don't think it would beat Boston or Toronto or probably Milwaukee either. Like, I think those teams are just better. And Boston right now is playing more like the team that we expected when the season started. It helps that they're playing an easy schedule. And that's kind of the up and down of an NBA season. But I think their depth is really starting to show. They've been a really good defensive team, and their offense seems like it's turned the corner. So, yeah, playing one of those three teams in the second round would be would be tough with the current roster. That being said, I think the four pieces that you really care about, I'm more confident in their fit than I was before the trade. I'm more confident in their top four. or I'm more confident in their fit than I was at the time of the trade. And I'm more confident in the core, the, the core four, I'll call them, than I was when the season started. So I think there's progress in that regard, but they have to shore up some of these holes which could be a, you know, they could be a fatal flaw.
0: It's a crazy thing that all these years we've been talking about, let's get the four stars, or and obviously J.J. isn't a superstar level player. We can, we can quibble maybe about Ben, too. But they have those guys now, and now that they're in place, you know, a, a top four that can really compete with everybody's outside of Golden State's. We're sitting here saying, "Oh man, five to ten has to be way better." <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> and it's true, you know. It's just it's it's just the situation they're in right now. I, I would agree with you on that. The the one thing, just watching the Sixers the last couple of nights, and uh, th- that is just killing them. W- when they get stops, their offense is so much better. I, I would assume that's true of most teams when when they get out in transition and not play against a set defense. But the havoc that Ben Simmons can cause, running those dribble handoffs with Redick, and you know, just just getting into the lane and maybe hitting Embiid for a trail where he'll do that crazy pump fake, which is annoying. But I, I just think this team is so much better offensively when they can get stops. So the problem is when you have all these guys who can just get attacked on the def- on the, on the defensive end, it's harder to do, harder to do that. So I'm with you. I. uh, I feel pretty good about the core players, but, yeah, the uh, especially for this year, if they don't find a way to get, I'm going to say, two uh, impact bench players, uh, I don't think this is a team that is going to have the firepower to beat somebody like Toronto or Boston. Could be no. wrong, but that seems like where we're at right now.
1: And, look, getting that getting that core of three or four guys to build around is – The important part, it has to come before getting the bench because a lot of times getting the bench gets in the way of getting those three or four guys. So this is the right progression to make. You would have hoped that some of the expenditures of assets they used beforehand, faults primarily being it, would have yielded more of a return. But also the little things that we've always talked about from the trading of the bigs to – to all that stuff that we don't need to rehash because it's been done a million times, you would have hoped that that would have yielded more that you could build off of, so they're at a little bit of a disadvantage in that regard. But this was always the progression to go to. Now they have to execute that, you know, better than they have so far. Um, so we will we will see. Like I said, just the fact that they're not there doesn't mean that going for the core players first was the the, the wrong way to go about it. Um, all right, well... Uh, Finish this up in a bit, but before we do that, a quick word from Action Heat. Uh, don't be fooled by the warm weather out there today. Winter is coming and it's going to be brutal. And Action Heat, a Philadelphia based manufacturer of some of the world's best battery heated clothing, is here to help you out. Action Heat clothing is engineered to safely and efficiently deliver heat via heating panels similar to a heated car seat. They can reach temperatures of up to 135 degrees Fahrenheit and are powered by rechargeable 5 volt lithium ion batteries that can last up to 12 hours on each charge. And they can also be used to recharge your phone or any other gadget while you're wearing them. These gifts are perfect for any friend or family on your holiday gift list, for anyone who works outdoors, for skiers and snowboarders, or anybody that loves the outdoors but despises being cold. Axonee clothing provides toasty warmth and comfort for your whole body, starting at just $39.99. Heated products include heated jackets socks gloves hats and even undergarments like heated base layer shirts and long johns and it's available in men's and women's sizes with great new styles and models just re- just released for the winter season make winter activities more enjoyable with a blast of warmth action heat is the perfect solution to keep you toasty and warm even in the most frigid winter weather there's nothing i hate more than cleaning the snow off my car but at least now with action Heat heated gloves i'll be warm in doing so powered by AA batteries with an easy on off button they'll keep your hands nice and toasty while dealing with that dreaded upcoming snow. Join in on the fun. We've got a special deal for our listeners to save 20% off your entire order. Just go to actionheat.com slash Sixers to check out everything Action Heat has to offer. That's actionheat.com slash Sixers, or use a coupon code Sixers at checkout to save 20%. All right, so if you're looking at this thing conceptually, you know, there's been a lot of talk of the Sixers going for another stretch four. There's been a lot of talk about the backup fives not being good enough, and obviously a lot of talk from us about not having enough perimeter defenders. We'll disregard names for now, although that will certainly be an upcoming podcast and or article. But what are you looking for in terms of style, in terms of role that they should be targeting for the next two months?
0: I think the first, if I had to pick one archetype of a player, it would be, it would be a four who can ideally stretch the floor and just not kill you defensively. And if that person can also bump and play a little small ball five, even better. That would be number one. And (laughs) it's impossible just not to think of Ursan Ilyasova when you think of that. But to me, that is their biggest, uh, their biggest weakness, but, you know, also defen- the other thing I would look for, and this would be, you know, I don't know, I think Mike has floated the name Damari Carroll. I know you said ignore names, but I, I flat out, I just can't do it. <laughs> a defensive-minded wing would be the other uh, the other thing I'm looking for. And uh, honestly, with the amount of creation on this team, as long as you can make a spot three, because I think we've talked a lot about how, the importance of being able to take your man one-on-one one on one, and, and how 3 and D is almost an antiquated term now. Just give me a straight 3 and D wing. Uh, you know, a, a guy who can defend multiple positions and make a spot three, if the Sixers were able to land relatively both of those two things, I think there's a chance we could be talking about them a little differently in a few months, but we'll see if that... Uh, you know, if they can get that on the buyout market or if that's going to have to be acquired in a trade of some sort.
1: Yeah, I mean, so I hate the term stretch four because we only really use that on guys who can't defend any other position. Like if it was a 3-4 defender, you never hear like a 3-4 call to stretch four. Um. You know, Robert Covington isn't called a stretch four, but I would, I would prefer someone like him over someone like Ilyasova. Obviously, you don't normally find guys like Robert Covington in, oh, I don't know, the D League, uh, except for Robert Covington specifically. But those guys are not easy to acquire. Uh, certainly, you're not going to find that on the buyout market. I think I would, what I would say is if you're going to get a big, at least get a big who can play both the four and the five credibly. Not like Mike Muscala credibly, but like actually credibly. Um I don't I I would try to avoid a one position defender like that. I think I'm a little more focused on a wing and I'll say more like a 2 3 wing which I hate using the label but I'm I'm talking to somebody with a little more mobility than Wilson Chandler. Um really what I think I would like is Wilson Chandler from like 3 to 4 years ago. Not the Wilson Chandler they got this year because I don't really think he's a credible... I, I know he was on there a lot last night down a stretch against um, Oladipo, but I would like somebody who can more credibly do that and move, maybe relegate Wilson Chandler to that bench role that I think we all envisioned when he when they acquired him. You know, I think Wilson Chandler isn't the player that we thought he was, and I think he's playing a much bigger role than we expected him to, and the combination of those two isn't, isn't great. Uh, but I would also love a... And again, this name isn't... You're not going to get somebody of this quality now, which is why I avoid names. But in this archetype, a Pat Beverly type would just do fucking wonders for this team. And somebody who can fight through those screens on the perimeter, who can really get up in a guy's face and defend, and who can also make a spot three. Like you said, being able to make a spot three shouldn't be the most difficult thing in the world to find, but it seems like it's been a struggle at times for this team. And forget positions because you know ben can defend point guards at times jimmy butler can defend point guards at times they just need more guys who can credibly defend and shoot just give me those two skills and i'm less concerned about position and more concerned about having more guys who can do both of those things although i i would like like i said somebody who can defend more than one two or three if i had to choose but i wouldn't be too picky as long as you can get those two skill sets
0: are you concerned about when they acquire these guys? Do you have the patience to wait until the trade deadline or the buyout time market?
1: No, I do. uh, Like my concern would be that guys like Ariza will leave before then. And if you wait, you could lose out on that opportunity. But I also like, you don't want to jump the market now and pay too much. So I would, you know, I, if, if, if you get the guy that you want, I don't necessarily care when it happens because I think there's still enough time to integrate them into what should be a pretty, you know, a pretty cookie cutter role. Um, and I'm not too worried about playoff positioning and seating at this time.
0: Yeah. You just better hope that, uh, that Jimmy Butler and Embiid stay healthy.
1: Well, yeah, that is true. Well, Luckily, they all have perfect track records of health, so there's no concern there. Um, hey, hey!
0: At least the Eagles are now under siege. Their medical department. I felt
1: uh, we we talked about this yesterday. I really I was I was annoyed at that because vague injury updates with unexplained, <laughs> you know, unexplained um, genesis of when they occurred. That's sort of our thing. So this is it. Feels like they're encroaching on our territory. Um, but that being said, if I had to. Right about another one of those, I'd probably lose my mind. So, good luck with that, eighty Eagles writers.
0: If Carson Wentz forgets how to throw a football, we'll know oh, something God. is on.
1: Oh God, don't even. <laughs> um, it, it, that's actually a good point, though. Carson gets a lot of criticism now because he didn't have the year I think a lot of people had, and now everyone's always, oh, "Is he really a franchise quarterback, or or was last year a flash in the pan?" Um, can you count on him health wise? And it's a lot like to me and we have this really odd tendency when a guy comes out you look at everything and I, I wrote about this again on Saturday but when a guy comes out you look at everything they can do and you're wowed and you're floored and you think man I we have this guy for a decade and then two years into it you go man, but look at all the things he can't do and there's sort of like that swinging pendulum of how we view players and prospects in the future. And eventually you kind of settle in the middle there. And, you know, we've said the shooting thing is a real big concern. And quite frankly, I think he might be a worse shooter than he was three years ago. And that's hashtag not great. And neither of us are going to convince you that that is not a concern. Neither of us are going to convince you that's not going to limit their upside together. But that doesn't mean that there aren't things Ben Simmons does on a basketball court that really help a team win. And I just it seems like in order to prove a point we all have to jump to hyperbole and you know drastic overreactions. Just calm down. Like he's a good basketball player. It's 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 good that the Sixers have him. And if in three years him and Simmons or him and Embiid don't work, you'll be able to trade Ben Simmons on a max contract. It's not it's it's not the end of the world. I promise. I promise. I'm with you, man. <laughs> all right. Uh Mark L. So I think there were, oh, no uh, real quick, I promise, real quick. Oh. Um, what was it? I think the Detroit Free Press, I forget the writer, so I apologize for that. I think, his,
0: I think his name's Rod Beard.
1: Okay. Came out and reported that the Pistons were doing their due diligence on Markel Fultz. And I believe there was something linking the magic to it as well. Again, I forget who put that out there, so I'm an awful human being and writer and and colleague, those two teams don't stun me. You know, uh, Pistons have some injury and depth issues at the point guard spot. Magic are probably the perfect place where Markell could go, along with maybe Phoenix, and live in sort of relative anonymity, or at least as much as you can for being a former number one overall draft pick, playing in the NBA. But not have quite the scrutiny he as here, so I think there's reason to think both those teams would be interested in him. do you think that this is something where a trade is imminent or whether these discussions will be substantial
0: I don't I, yeah. but I just look at it as why would you want him yeah or, or, I think, or at least why would you want to why would you want to give up anything of value for him.
1: Right. So I think what is probably happening and this is mostly speculation, but a you know, little chatter, but a lot of speculation too. I think what is happening our teams are putting out feelers to see if they can essentially steal him for nothing and get him as sort of a lottery reclamation ticket to see if they can bring him into their system, bring him into their coaching staff, maybe remove some distractions from his life and get him back on track. And and training staff too. And get him back on track to where he was, or at least a, a, some resemblance of what he was. And to do that for nothing, or essentially nothing, nothing of value. And I just feel like if the Sixers are actually going to get something, that's – an offer that's going to interest them, to pique their interest. He's going to have to get back on the court and at least show that, you know, the thoracic outlet syndrome was a factor, that the rehab is working, and that he's. And again, I. We said this and I forget which podcast. They all kind of blur together. But we said this recently where I think any notion that he's going to go do physical therapy for three weeks, come back and shoot like Washington is patently absurd. Like he's been shooting – regardless of your interpretation of the situation, he's been shooting the basketball wrong for a year and a half, and that's going to take some time. But if he's at least showing progress towards an end goal, then that will help you, the Sixers get what it would probably require to move him. And like I said, like I wrote about, moving him just for salary relief isn't as drastic as I think a lot of people realize. It can't be the only driving force behind a Markel Fultz trade. And if they do that, I think it would be a pretty serious mistake. Are we done? (laughs) Come on, Rich. Give me your Markel Fultz thoughts. Come on. I don't know. I thought
0: thought we did a good job last time (laughs) talking about the injury and – yeah, you know, I honestly that, that was more interesting to me than the trade talk, but yeah, it's I don't know. It's it's kinda I mean, nice that Markel is he's in Southern California. I think I think the the doctor, her name is Judy Seto, who he's working with. Uh yeah. I, I don't know. I don't I don't have much else. On it.
1: Yeah, and I mean it, it, these are trade discussions where we haven't even heard any return back yet, so it's real Real early stuff today, or Saturday, is the first day that uh, players signed in free agency can be traded. So some of the levers have opened up to where trades might start materializing. Uh, The Suns and the Wizards opened that up. Uh, The Grizzlies attempted to help with that, but things got confusing. So we could could see some movement, not necessarily in Markel, but in trade talks in the coming days and weeks but I, I, I agree with you I think I think we're we're still a bit away um, so I don't think that will be resolved anytime soon I think that's about all I got you got anything else
0: no hopefully
1: luckily, Jimmy Butler
0: comes back on uh, yeah before or after this podcast <laughs> drops
1: <laughs> <laughs> Lu- luckily there's enough controversy in Sixers land that filling a 50 minute podcast is not all that much work but we will let you go Thank you for jumping on, and we will talk to you soon. All
0: right, man. See ya It ain't hard to tell. I excel then prevail. The mic is contacted. I attract clientele. My mic check is right for depth, breathing the sniper's breath. I exhale the yellow smoke of Buddha through righteous steps.